Hello and welcome to The REIT Report. I'm your host, Sarah Borgson-Keto. Today, I'm looking forward to a wide-ranging conversation that includes the multifamily housing sector, the use of data, governance issues, and more with my guest, Ken Bacon. Ken is co-founder and managing partner of Railfield Partners, and before that, spent 19 years at Fannie Mae as an EVP and head of the multifamily business. He also currently serves as chairman and board of Wealth Tower, among a number of other positions he holds. Ken, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So your firm, Realfield Partners, is actively investing in managing workforce and affordable housing across the country. Can you describe how you see the current outlook for this type of housing in terms of supply and demand as well as investor interest? Well, I think that's a very good question because uh, if you look in the headlines, uh, particularly since people uh, are coming out of the pandemic, you see a lot of stories about the lack of access to affordable housing. People can't buy a home. You see rents going up by double-digit percentage increases. And so there's a lot of concern, but I think a lot of the concern is, uh, I don't want to say not focused properly, but I, I think there are a lot of different aspects of the problem. I think, first of all, when we say workforce and affordable housing, a lot of people are really thinking about uh, lower income families. But if you pull back the covers and look at the data, you'll see that uh, young professionals, people earning six-figure salaries in cities like San Francisco and New York are hard-pressed to find places that they can afford. So this affordable housing uh, crisis that you hear about, it's not just a lower income phenomena. Clearly, it's, it, it's greater the less income you have. But even people earning six figures, it's hard to find uh, an affordable rental. On a place like New York, for example, you know you might be spending three or four thousand dollars on a one bedroom apartment. So if you look at that on a percentage of income, if you wanted to only spend 30% of your income, you quickly realize that, wow, this is, this is not a, a, a very healthy development. So the demand is there. Uh, investors are definitely interested. Uh, we've seen firms like Starwood and Blackstone get into affordable housing. Part of that is due to, I think, some ESG phenomena, but I think also it's just due to people look and say, wow, there's tremendous demand here. Uh, I think I should be involved. The supply side of this is very hard, though, to change in the short term. Uh, there are hard costs. Uh, construction costs are up. Uh, that's definitely an issue. But I think the biggest problem is, is that um, the process to build housing, to develop housing, even if you want to do a Class A property, it takes too long. It's too difficult. The development process in most major cities, I think I've read studies where the cost, what I call the soft cost of development, the entitlement process, going through zoning, meeting with community groups, has really uh, almost doubled over the past 15 to 20 years. I mean, it's a huge expense that has an adverse impact on supply. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, the industry and policymakers are going to have to uh, deal with. We're hearing a lot these days about possible recession on the horizon. How do you think this could impact the multifamily sector? One of the things that uh, I'll, I'll tell you about multifamily is that uh, when recessions come, 
it definitely affects uh, rent growth, but I think it usually affects what I call the higher end housing, uh, the places that might be a high rise building with a uh, uh, cigar lounge, a yoga room. But if as we go down uh, to garden style apartments or older apartments, I think demand will be strong because people have to have a place to live. So I, I think will it have an impact? Yes, I think it will impact your ability to uh, raise rents. I think it will hurt demand for certain high-end units, but, but there's no substitute. I mean, people have to have a place to live. And I think that uh, uh, the lower the rent, the healthier the occupancy will be. Uh, so recession is something that we have to look at, but having been through recessions of multifamily housing, what's different this time is that we don't have an oversupply. We don't have enough. So I think recession will hurt the economics some, but I don't think it will prove devastating. And as you look ahead, are there any innovative trends or ideas in the affordable and workforce housing space that give you encouragement right now? You know, I mentioned earlier that I see more investor interest, uh, you know, like Nuveen even set up uh, uh, impact funds. So I, I see people starting to take a look at uh, housing, a more holistic look. Uh, which I think is good. I'd say that the other thing that I see happening is that people, uh, if we just go back even five years ago, people looked at uh, multifamily housing. Well, it was just a place to live. Well, what happened with the pandemic, it highlighted the fact that, well, no, it's not just a place to live. It's a place to work. It's a place to learn. Um, most apartment buildings built in the last 30 or 40 years have had some type of business center. And if you ran by these places, you walk through uh, a lobby of a lot of apartment buildings in the middle of the day, you'd look at the business center and it was empty. I think that's changing. I think people working from home, I think that's going to be permanent. So I think the ability of a building, uh, you know, one feature that's becoming more important is connectivity. Do you or do we have high-speed Wi-Fi, uh, can I get, uh, is my apartment uh, gonna give me access to the internet? And I also think that even some of the amenities, uh, the fitness amenities, uh, uh, you know, business centers used to just have like two desktops, but I think now people are saying, hey, we need a big screen so we can do a Zoom conference. So the ability to work, the ability to uh, telehealth, uh, uh, classes. I think these things are going to change uh, the types of amenities we offer, uh, how our common spaces are used, uh, how technology is used. It can't be an afterthought. I think it has to be uh, front and center now. And looking more broadly, how do you see the current state of fundamentals in the commercial real estate industry? And where do you see some of the key opportunities and challenges today? Well, you know, we talk about commercial real estate industry. I, I have to really break it down into sectors because uh, it is, uh, I don't want to say it's a tale of two cities. It's a tale of like four or five cities. Right. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, I, I've said that I think I'm, I'm very bullish on multifamily just because uh, we have a supply demand imbalance that will not be resolved uh, in the short run. But if I go look at office space, we have a demand supply imbalance is not going to be resolved in the, sh in, the, in the short run. But the problem there is too much supply. My office is in Bethesda. A lot of new buildings have come up in the past few years. And there are a lot of older buildings 
some B buildings, but even some buildings that were originally class A buildings that were built 10 or 15 years ago that are sitting empty. And I know one uh, large tenant in the building in my area where they've got several floors, but they said, you know, we're only using 25% of the space. So that when their lease comes up, you know, they're not gonna take all that space. So I think that there are sectors uh, in commercial real estate that are hurting. Retail is another one that's hurting. And there are only so many shopping malls. There are only so many office buildings that can be converted for reuse. I was in an office building the other day with one of my partners that was kind of empty. And we were saying, wow, it would really be hard to turn this thing into an apartment building because of the way the floors are constructed. Someone would have to build some type of interior courtyard. I mean, it would be a massive undertaking. So I think that there's some sectors of commercial real estate that are, that, that are hurting because of uh, changes that have happened in the economy. And I think that's a challenge, not only for the industry, but for policymakers, because uh, people are gonna have to rethink zoning. They're gonna have to rethink uh, uh, the process the tax policy to get some of these assets uh, productive again. And I think from investors, you know, we've had decades of easy money and easy money, I think, kind of corrodes your decision-making ability sometimes. Right. So it'd be tougher to make decisions about how, how to invest. You know, I look at the young associates we have in my office. To them, you know, three or 4% interest rates are normal. Well, you know, I'm 67 years old, and for the last decades since the financial crisis, I've been saying, this, this is kind of crazy. I mean, I've never seen interest rates this, this low. We saw a lot of the positive leverage in deals disappear. So I, I think now that we're getting back to, to me, what is a more normalized investment ecology, so to speak, with interest rates going up, I think that that's gonna have an effect on commercial real estate too, because I think investors, it's gonna to have to work a lot harder to get some of these returns. So I think some deals just aren't gonna get done. So that, that, that's another factor. Okay. So I think we've got the macro in terms of the economy. I think we've got things specific to the investment process, the cost of money. So we've got a lot of things happening all at once. And I don't think we've had anything like this in, in decades, probably since, late 80s when the tax code changed. So given all these challenges that we're facing in the market today, do you think it's even more important to be using data to make investment decisions? Oh, yes, yes. And I've seen that from, from two perspectives. When we started our investment platform here at Railfield, we sat down to come up with our own little algorithm, uh, so to speak, about where we wanted to invest. Because when I was at Fannie Mae, I remember that I would talk to uh, a lot of the big apartment companies that say, well, why are you investing in such and such a place? They'd say, well, it's a good market. Mm -hmm. And I'd always say, well, what makes it a good market? So the classic example I'll give you is that um, when we started our firm, we got an allocation of capital to invest in Texas. And this is back in 2014. And at that time, most people would, if you said Texas, people said, oh, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, oh, Austin is great. But you never see anybody mention San Antonio. When we were looking at some data, we were looking at job starts, we were looking at net migration, we were looking at construction starts, and you know, San Antonio just jumped out. And I remember that I would go ask a lot of people, including big uh, real estate companies in Texas, hey, what about San Antonio? 
Well, uh, I like Austin. I mean, you, you didn't see a lot of uh, people from outside the city going there. In fact, when we did one deal, I think 2014 to 2015, it was the biggest deal done by someone outside the city that year. Fast forward to 2018, 2019, and all of a sudden people discovered San Antonio. You started seeing more money coming in and uh, the whole corridor between San Antonio and Austin is on fire. If you go up I-35, uh, there are places like uh, New Braunfels, uh, uh, San Marcos, places that were afterthoughts that are now seeing lots of development. And I think that's just because, again, people started looking at the data and not just following the herd. So I think it's, it's very important for even a firm like ours. If I switch hats and look at Well Tower, where they do a lot of development, Well Tower uses data. I mean, they've got data scientists. They, they collect a lot of data. They're much, much more sophisticated than I could ever think about being in my shop. But they don't use it to displace judgment, but they use it to make informed decisions. You know, you could go into a city and have 100 potential sites to develop. How do you decide which of the 10 best? You've got to use some type of data. You've got to do some type of analysis. And what's different now is that as opposed to just looking at, oh, how much traffic is there, you really need to start looking at who wants to live here. What's the demographic profile of the person who will rent here? If I'm building a medical office building, what type of services are going to be needed? Which doctors do I want in this building? Which hospital do I want to align with? If I'm going to have a, a, a cardiologist, what percentage of uh, people over 65 live in this a 15 minute drive from this building? So I think that the data we have at our fingertips now used properly can help us make more informed decisions. Great. And Ken, I just wanted to switch to governance matters for a bit. Um, you're chair of the board at Well Tower and as well as other board positions. Do you think that the responsibilities and objectives of the board have really shifted in the last few years due to the pandemic, as well as uh, the impact of social justice priorities, ESG matters, and more issues? Oh, definitely. I remember a few years ago when I was on another board and one of the big three, I call them the big three, you know, Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, I won't mention which one, said they wanted to be with the board. I was heading a committee at this particular organization. So, you know, I boned up, I got all the numbers, you know, stock buybacks and dividend policy and leverage. You know, I had numbers flowing out my ears and I got there and they wanted to talk about board governance. Do we do board evaluations? And I'm sitting there and I keep waiting and it didn't happen. It was all about governance. Part of that is that uh, the style of investing has changed. When you have people who are doing index funds, they don't have to do fundamental analysis. They own you because they have to own you. It's a passive form of investing. That's one thing. But the other thing that's happened is that we now have activist investors who aren't necessarily concerned with uh, activist investor. When I used to say that, you would think of a Nelson Peltz or you would think of a hedge fund who wanted you to shake up your strategy to make more money. But now we've got activists who have uh, a different type of agenda, a non-economic agenda. It might be social justice. It might be diversity. It might be environmental. We're also seeing 
a counterweight to that. I think that Peter Thiel has formed this uh, fund called Strive, where they want companies, we don't want you to look at the environmental things. So uh, if you look at annual meetings, I was on uh, one virtual annual meeting, and we had uh, shareholder uh, proposals that went everything from, we want you to do a racial audit, to you're too woke. We want you to make it easier to vote. We want you to stay out of politics. So the things coming to the board now, there's a lot of what I call non-economic issues that you can't duck. And I think that the George Floyd, I think the last two elections have exacerbated this trend. And so the responsibilities of a board have shifted because you have to, to deal with this. And I haven't even talked about your employees mm -hmm. or your customers. They want to know. And what makes it difficult is that most corporations, you know, you're not equipped necessarily to deal with a lot of these issues. You've hired managers, you've got leadership that's attuned to creating value for shareholders, that uh, wants to make it a good place to work, that wants to be attentive to the demands of consumers for their products and services. So all of a sudden we now say, well, you have to deal with the governor of Florida. You've got to deal with the mayor of New York City. And when people then take their political positions and put that agenda front and center of the money they control, their pension plans, that gives even more weight and impetus to the need to address this. And I think that it's changing the job of the board, but also the CEO, because what used to be viewed as an occasional crisis, I think crisis management, dealing with an expanded slate of stakeholders is just becoming the norm. So looking ahead, is it really possible to pick out any particular governance trends that you think you'll be paying the most attention to? You know, I'd say that the SEC put forth things on climate change, which have elicited lots of comments. Mm -hmm. So because the SEC says it, guess what? I've got to pay attention. The other one that the SEC has not touched yet, but they will, is going to be what I call human capital. It's not enough now just to say, here's my diversity numbers. Now people want to look at who's been promoted, what are the pay, what's the pay. I think that that's one that is not going to go away. And it's one that's very difficult to deal with because people measure things different ways. And I think that that's, that, that's one that, that's coming up. And then I think the, the whole thing about your involvement in external causes. Uh, we saw the situation with, with Disney. We're seeing that with abortion. You know, 10 years ago, you said, what do I have to say? Abortion, that's, that's a private matter. Well, now there are people saying, we want you to change your, 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 your healthcare policies so people can go out of state if they need to. So uh, I, I think human capital, I think climate, and I think just what I call responding to wider social political changes those three things are all coming to the fore. I think the governance, look, they're going to continue to be developments. But I think most people now, in terms of board refreshment, uh, uh, transparency, uh, selection to boards, diversity on boards, I think there's been a lot of progress. And I think that that's, that's very manageable. I think still more needs to be done. But I think the G, with the environmental and the social issues, 
are going to grow over time and become more difficult to deal with. Great. Ken, we've covered lots of ground, but is there anything else that you'd like to mention before we go? I think one of the things that the real estate industry needs to pay attention to is the trends about how people want to work and live. I mean, people are doing it on kind of, uh, you know, in terms of design, but I think that the industry might have to get more involved with policymakers. And I'll give you the classic example that's happening in several cities. Rents go up. And uh, I saw like in Minneapolis, for example, uh, they said, okay, we want, we're going to have rent control. We're going to limit rent to 3% a year. And for those of us who have dealt with uh, rent control, we know that that's not a good idea in the long run. But a lot of policymakers don't understand that. And I think a lot of times we only get involved from a reactive position. They did this, let's react. So I think the industry is going to have to get more involved uh, by being proactive, telling cities, man, you know, we kind of do it, but I mean, we might have to do commercials. We might have to reach out to civic groups to explain to people that, for example, affordable housing does not mean we're just doing the homeless. You have a problem getting your school teachers, your policemen, your civil servants a place to live. And to do that, we have to have a better process. You know, we have to have a better process. You need to talk to us when you're talking about public transportation. If you're concerned about rents growing up, we need to do a better job of explaining the economics of the business and how public policy and tax policy and all these things affect what we do. And while some people might argue we're doing that, when I look at commercials, like if you turn on your, your television, I don't think this is just limited to DC, you'll often see different trade groups or different lobbying organizations telling people, hey, the Senate is looking at this bill. This will affect you in such and such a way. Write your senator, write your congressman, write the mayor. I think real estate, we're going to have to start doing that. I think we're really going to have to start telling the tale, not just in our boardrooms, but to the public at large, that here are the things that, that affect your life. Because otherwise, I think we'll just always be in this defensive posture. So I think we're going to have to become more proactive. Excellent. Ken, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.